Everybody. Welcome to the very first episode of a brand new podcast, Three Jews, Four Opinions, where the fourth opinion is yours, the listeners. My name is Paul Gross. I'm sitting here in Jerusalem. I'm originally from the UK, as you can probably tell from my accent. Uh, and I'm joined by uh, fellow intrepid uh, podcasters. To my left, Abe Silberstein in New York, and to my right, Gabriel Brahm in Tel Aviv. Um, and um, first of all, as this is our first episode, um, I'm going to ask Abe to say a few words about himself, um, and then I'll ask Gabriel to do the same. I will then um, introduce myself a little more, and then we'll get to the, the meat of our podcast, which will be every week, the three of us uh, debating some issues and events that have taken place uh, in, in recent days, um, and you'll hear uh, our differing political perspectives uh, on these issues um, pertinent to the Jewish world and to Israel. Um, so without further ado, uh, Abe Silverstein in New York, can you tell us a little about yourself, please? So as you probably can't tell from my accent, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I was born here 27 years ago. Um, and since then, I've been kind of, you know, writing a lot. Um, I actually did have a podcast way back when, when I was 12 or 13 years old, it was, it was on one of those older, my, my, like on MySpace, I think it was, but it was that I have not tried it since then. I've mostly been writing for different publications like The Forward, Haaretz. I had one op-ed in the New York Times in 2017. Um, I have a forthcoming article in the Times Literary Supplement that people might be interested in. Um, but most people will know me from Twitter, from the Jewish section of Twitter that tends to discuss Israel and other um, hot topics in the Jewish community. And I'm really excited for this. And I guess I'll just kick it back to, to Gabriel um, to introduce himself. And I've known him for a couple of years, too. Shalom l'kulam. I'm very delighted to be here with you, too. Uh, Erudite gentlemen, I'm uh, Gabi Brahm, and I'm the director of the Center for Academic and Intellectual Freedom uh, in Northern Michigan. And here in Tel Aviv, I'm currently uh, serving as a research fellow at the Herzl Institute of uh, the University of Haifa. I've done some uh, anti-BDS work. I did a, a book uh, opposing a BDS as a threat to academic freedom and um, my background is in political philosophy and uh, literary theory, cultural studies, that uh, sort of thing. It's uh, a pleasure and an honor uh, to be here with you two Jews and to be one of the three is really a thrill. Paul, who are you? Uh, thank you, thank you for the question. Uh, so as I said at the beginning, I'm Paul Gross. I'm originally from London, UK. Uh, I've been here in Israel now for about 14 years, uh, and I've been working in a number of positions here, primarily educating, lecturing, writing about Israeli history, Zionism, and uh, Israeli politics. And I've written on those topics and others for a number of publications uh, in Israel, in the UK, in the US. Um, I have a piece coming out 
shortly, I hope, I'm still waiting to get the final date, uh, on the uh, persuasion site about, um, about how the Israeli government, the current uh, rather unusual Israeli coalition government, could serve as a model for other countries where oppositions are trying to unseat uh, populist leaders um, by having a diverse coalition of, um, of parties coming together. Um, and I, um, I'm also active on social media. I certainly have nothing like the followers that either Abe or Gabriel have, but I'm, uh, that I'm aspiring to, uh, to be as, um, as well followed as, uh, as those two gentlemen. Um, well, you're getting there. May I, may I just say, I, I speak on behalf of myself and not uh, my institutions that I'm uh, affiliated with. I don't know about, about you guys. Yeah, I think that's very important to note that we're, we're, all, we're all independently here. We are, we are here representing no one but ourselves. Um, that's that I think is important to none step. of this will save you, but yes, I'll, I'll, I'll add <laughs> retweets are not endorsements. I have been publishing recently. I think this will help our listeners, our many listeners to, uh, to, to get the, uh, the map of the political spectrum, uh, uh, in focus. Uh, you mentioned you're writing for persuasion and that seems just right for you, Paul, from what I know of your, your work. And I'm a great admirer of yours. Yeah, I've published this thing. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. yeah. What would you call that? A more or less cent centrist liberal? Yeah, it's kind of philosophical liberalism. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, these days I, I tend to identify myself as a, as, a, as a sort of liberal with some center-left leanings, mainly in, uh, in socioeconomics and some center-right leanings to more in sort of foreign policy and, and security issues. Very good. I have a piece out uh, not, not long ago, it occurs to me, in The American Mind, published by the Claremont Institute. And I know that Abe is a big fan of Claremont. And Abe's publications are uh, a little more left-leaning, is that fair to say? Like uh, yeah. uh, Haaretz, of all things? The dreaded yeah, Haaretz? They're, they're, the they're belly of the beast? More. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think, I think, I think our listeners are getting, are getting a sense of where we are now. So I'm, I'm the mod, I'm, I'm the moderator, not just because of my, of my plummy British accent, but also because, but also because I'm, I'm, I guess at least on, at least on some of the issues we're going to be discussing, I'm kind of in the middle of, of Abe and, and, and Gabriel. And we also discovered that age-wise, I'm almost exactly in the middle as well. I'm, I'm shared, exactly the same number of years. Younger than Gabriel, as I'm older than eight. Um, so let should we should we get to um, should we get to the meat of the of the? Let's the get right to it. We we have so much to talk about and only so much time. Right. So I'm going to invite A to um, to introduce his topic, what he wanted to bring to the table, what he wanted to bring to this first episode of the podcast, and then after he's introduced it, we'll get Gabriel and I will give our responses. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know how much I can really give as an introduction to this, but I, I, you know, wanted to bring up this whole story about Roman Abramovich and his donations to various um, Jewish organizations as well as Israeli organizations. And as Gabriel well knows, and as many of our listeners well know, last week there was this kind of long piece that was published in Jewish Currents by David Cleon, who's kind of an acquaintance a Twitter acquaintance of mine and I, it was, it was, it's a quite good, I think, or extensive profile of, of Abramovich and all of the different um, ways in which his money has kind of sifted through the Jewish world on, you know, in three different continents in the United States and Europe and, and, and in Israel. 
Um, and I think this is, you know, a, a very concerning story, especially given um, after the war began, we had that um, that letter signed by several individuals, including Danny Dayan, who's now the chairman of Yad Vashem, who's, you know, the former leader, uh, chairman of the Yesha Council and, and Consul General of New York, basically signing this character testimony for Abramovich, who, like most Russian oligarchs, got rich off, you know, his connections to Vladimir Putin or other, or, or just, you know, simply the, the sale of Soviet state institutions in the 90s, but has stayed wealthy and well-connected through his connections to Vladimir Putin. And it's, on the one hand, I, just to give my take on this very quickly, I, I understand um, what John Ruske um, of the UJA Federation, or former part of the UJA Federation, said um, to Cleon, which was that, you know, where would you rather have this money go, to Jewish organizations, or would you rather have it stay in the Russian oligarch's pocket or, you know, potentially go back to the regime in some way. And I think that point is well taken. But at the same time, you cannot have a situation where there's this expectation that Jewish organizations will put their names on the line for someone like Abramovich, which is, I think, the, the unfortunate line that Diane crossed with that. And I'll just throw it over to whichever one of you want to want to continue on this um, on this point. Gabriel? Well, I couldn't disagree more. I, I was appalled by Cleon's article. I, I, it seemed to me to be the most uh, pungent, rank, uh, and malodorous example of, of anti-Semitism that I've come across lately. If I gather Cleon's point, uh, he seemed to be saying that um, there are rich people in the world. Some of them are Jews. There are oligarchs. Some of them are Jews. The Jewish ones give their money to Jewish organizations. And isn't that, um, isn't that just, just dreadful? Um, did I miss something? Yes, I think you missed the, the crucial point of it, which was, I mean, first of all, there is that issue of where, of where the money is coming from, I think is a question that, that all nonprofits face, not just Jewish nonprofits, but Abramovich is using this money in, in a way to launder his reputation. Um, and and it's, it's especially gross when it, become, when it comes to an organization like Yad Vashem, which is, you know, meant to commemorate the Holocaust. It's not, it, it does, it shouldn't, it, unless the controversy is something directly related to the history of the Holocaust. And, you know, there have been cases in that sense, you shouldn't directly intervene on the behalf of a donor like that, especially a donor with such, you know, such horrible connections as, as, as Mr. Abramovich. Who's he connected to? My Vladimir Putin. Oh yeah. Paul, what do you think? So, okay, so this is actually, I mean, I, I, couldn't, guy. I couldn't have planned this better in the sense that the very first topic we discussed in our very first episode, and I genuinely find myself smack in the middle, um, which in, this, in the following sense, in the following sense, I actually agree with, um, I agree with A, that uh, there is something that, firstly, that there is, that the, 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 Ramovich's gains are very much ill-gotten gains. These are, the, these are, you know, this is money that was, that basically belonged to ordinary Russian, that basically belonged to, to, to Russian people. That it was, you know, he made, he, I think, I, I believe he received $13 billion from the Russian state for the sale of his, of his oil company, even though the company was worth a couple of hundred million at best. Um, uh, and this was money that belonged to the Russian people. And it was, it was Putin's way of essentially 
um, guaranteeing that the, olig the oligarchs like Abramovich would be on his side. And this money not only um, goes to various good causes, um, but also to fund um, Putin's uh, various um, uh, palatial homes across Russia. So I think there's, there is, I, I, I'm very uncomfortable with the way the money, with the, with the, the way he got his money. Um, and I think that not just Jewish organizations, but um, all, as you said, all charities should be very careful about this. And I, and I'm, I, I mean, I actually know Danny Diane uh, personally a little, and I like him very much, even though I, my politics are not his, especially on, on, on the topic of, of settlements. Um, but, um, but he's a very, he's a very decent guy. And I, and I wouldn't, even though I haven't discussed this with him, I would be very, very surprised if he was anything other than appalled at Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and, 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 you know, on the side of, I think most decent people of having nothing but sympathy for, for Ukrainian people. So I don't think Danny Diane's, um, character reference for Abramovich should be taken as some kind of sympathy with Russia or Putin. And the same goes for other Jewish organizations. I think I wouldn't the way they're in a that situation. Sorry, Abe? And I, and I wouldn't suggest that either. I, I, I don't yeah. know where, I, I, I presume Danny Dayan's position on this is, is okay. I think I saw a tweet of his that, that sympathized with Ukraine. I wouldn't doubt that. It's just, yeah. it, it's even so just to just, it's it's the point is that it's it, it's the way this is using an institution like Yad Vashem because that's where his name is connected to. So, okay, so I'm going to push back a little bit on this. So this is this is where I did, I'm going to disagree with you somewhat. I, I actually think I'm not sure about the cynicism of the donations, and, and I'll tell you why I say that. So I don't I don't know Roman Abramovich personally at all, um, but I do think there is a kind of tradition of wealthy. Jews, not just Russian oligarchs, but other wealthy Jews in the United States and elsewhere, who are not themselves religious people, but who, but who basically their way of, of being Jewish or being religious, I guess, in a, some kind of indirect sense, is by using their wealth to help fund Jewish organizations and things like Chabad and things like that. I mean, it's not, it's not just Israeli organizations. He's given widely to, to a variety of different things, um, as the article makes clear. And I'm, I, I think ascribing purely cynical motives to him, that it's just about laundering his name. I'm not so sure about that, actually. I think that, I, I, I think that we, I think we shouldn't, I think we shouldn't be so sure that this isn't just someone who is who, who as, as well as everything else, as well as the things that we rightly condemn about him, might also have a genuine, a genuine desire to, in some way, express his his solidarity with with Jewish with Fair his, enough. Jewish and people. I, I, I don't doubt that he may have good motives in making these donations. I, I don't. I can't possibly know his motives. That's that's kind of epistemological impossibility. I, I don't know what what his what it, what's in his head, but certainly if. Yad Vashem or Danny Dayan felt compelled to sign this letter or, or felt the need to sign this letter, then they themselves view this as a kind of 
exchange because if Abramovich had never donated anything to Jewish organizations, I can't imagine that this letter ever would have materialized. So if he doesn't view it as a kind of, as an insurance policy for his reputation in some way, then they certainly do. And that's a problem on their end and how they view this, whether or not this was Abramovich's express intent. Now, personally, I think this said there almost certainly some cynicism on his part, given that one of these donations was made two weeks ago or so. So I can't, it, it, the timing of it is, is highly suspicious for me, but even if it's not, even if his intentions are completely pure, it, the way it's treated on the other end is what was disturbing to me, at least in this article. Could I, could I turn that around perhaps and ask about the timing and the motives of the uh, author and the publication who brought this article out? Uh, now, with what uh, with what purpose in mind? So Why is as a Jewish as a Jewish as a Jewish current? It's called as a Jewish current. Yeah, sure. Look, it's it's. Why? It's, what I, are they up to with Rabbi Jill Jacobs attacking the state of Israel? What? Why? What? Are, what are they trying to do? As far as I know, this was an article that had been months and months in the making. And like any news organization, when there's an event that kind of brings a story, that, that makes a story even more relevant, they'll kind of rush to get it out. And that's that's what happened with this. This was not done in the last two weeks. Clearly, this was something that had been in the works for for several months, and um, and this was the angle they they had put on it. I don't think that's an illegitimate journalistic practice. I think it's it's fairly routine. Would you say that as a Jewish current has been hijacked by woke millennials? No. <laughs> Can I try <laughs> another another uh, 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 thought out on you? I'm just spitballing here. Money is fungible. I wish Abramovich had given more money. To Yad Vashem. Am I wrong? There's nothing wrong with that. I just, it's, it's the institutional response to seeing him in trouble or potentially in trouble, which was the problem. I, 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 as I said at the beginning, I sympathize with what John Ruske said in that article, which is that, that in the end, as long as the money is being used for the organization's purposes, it, for, you know, let's put aside any issues I might have with the way Yad Vashem operates. It's, it's, you know, it, it does what it does. I'm not gonna, I don't think they were gonna change anything as a result of Abramovich's donation, but as a, as a responsible member of the public or as a, as a community institution or a government institution, I think it has some responsibility not to act like someone's character um, defense uh, um, in, this, in this situation just because he wrote a check. I, I don't, I don't, and that's really the only reason they would have done that. And, 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 and the reason, and I think Jewish Currents, by putting out this story, is, is bringing this to the attention of many American Jewish readers who otherwise wouldn't have known about this, given the story that's happening right now is mainly about the war in Ukraine. And if you weren't paying attention last week on the day this letter was issued, I think there was one piece in the Times of Israel, one piece by Noah Landau and Haaretz. Otherwise, you know, this would go under the radar. And I think it's it's great that Jewish Currents and David Kleon, um, you know, th- rushed this piece out to make sure that it's that readers understood that even though Jewish Currents does tend to have a more left-leaning audience, I think this article in particular is gained purchase um, in various corners of the community. Well, I think it's a genre. Okay, can I, can I make one, uh, can I add one piece of um, sort of information to this that might be of interest to, 
to our listeners, many of whom I imagine will be um, not in the UK. Uh, they'll be in Israel or the United States, where most of the Jews are. And, um, I, and I, with my British hat on, um, it, it might be interesting for listeners to know that the, the Roman Abramovich story is big news in Britain because he's the owner of a, of a, of a soccer team, of a football team in Britain. And, um, and football, as we call it in the UK, um, I'll call it soccer for the, for, for the benefit of, of American listeners. Do you but, play with but, your foot? Do you actually uh, play football? Yeah, this is, yeah. yeah. I, we don't, we don't you, do you that. Don't, you, you don't want to get me started on, on the on the um, on on the fact that this is actually a sport where a ball is kicked with someone's foot. Hence no, we play football. football by picking up the ball and throwing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where something that's, where something that's not shaped like a ball is held in people's hands. Yes, that's right. Um, but let's call it soccer, so it's not to confuse anyone. So he he owns a he owns a soccer a soccer team in in the UK, Chelsea, um, and it's a huge deal in Britain because. He essentially took over a team that was a kind of middling, not very successful team, and purely by pumping enormous amounts of money into it, overnight turned it into one of the two or three most successful teams in Europe. Um, and now he's having to sell the team. And there's a whole big question about what happens to Chelsea as a result of this. Now, apart from the fact that's interesting for people that are interested in soccer, it also in some weird way relates to this conversation because in Britain, there's a whole conversation around sports washing and the, the, the and, and especially around soccer, actually. And before this whole issue with Abramovich and, and, and around the, the, the Russian, Russia-Ukraine story, the big story was that Saudi Arabia, or rather the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia, um, which is in, in effect the Saudi government, um, have bought a, a, another uh, English soccer team, Newcastle, um, and within probably a couple of years, this otherwise very, very unsuccessful, in fact, failing team will probably be among the best teams in Europe because the, 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 the wealth of the Saudi state will be behind it. And this is clearly, everyone is in, um, is in no doubt, this is about Saudi Arabia um, trying to show the world what a, what a, that they're, they're about more than, they're about more than, uh, than sort of uh, extremist um, extremist interpretations of Islam and persecuting homosexuals. So, and of course, assassinating journalists. Um, so, that is that that's that's actually quite an, an interesting um, an interesting correlation with with what's happening in um, with Abramovich and um, and Jewish organisations. Is that this whole question as to whether by giving money you are um, in some way laundering your reputation? Well, I wish he would launder it more. I wish he would give more money to more good causes. But I, I'm in the minority here, I can see. No, no, it's, it, I don't, I don't, the issue I don't think is the money. I think if he wants to give this money, that's, that's fine. But when, I, and I think this will actually goes nicely into the next topic we're going to be discussing, which is, which is your piece, Gabe, on, on the issue of academic freedom and, and donations. But if someone wants to give money, that's not the problem. The problem is the expectation that these organizations will act in his defense as a result of giving this money. I don't think there was any agreement that would happen, but I, Yad Vashem should not have, or, or Danny Dayan, I don't, Yad Vashem wasn't issued on Yad Vashem letterhead thankfully um just that this was that to have that expectation that these groups will act in your defense if you want people to see these donations and to, and to make their own minds up i you know that's that's an issue of the public's naivete not not the organizations themselves 
Well, this uh, discussion of the protocols of the elders of football has really got me very agitated. I went and I did some research uh, when I knew we'd be discussing this. Has either of you ever visited uh, Roman Abramovich's hotel in Nevizetic? I walked there. It's a 10-minute walk from my domicile. I was there uh, on Friday. It's a charming neighborhood. It's full of um, supermodels in, in sweatpants, uh, French speakers, <laughs> cafes, uh, bookshops, uh, wine selection like you can't believe. And Abramovich's um, uh, Versano Hotel. Uh, have I piqued your interest? It's 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 a modest-looking building, and I I, I take it he's going to be be uh, revamping it. But did you hear who he bought it from? No. Who, who's the who's the most famous sort of quasi-resident of Nevizetic um, that you can think of uh, in Israel, Paul, or or Abe for that matter? Superwoman, no, Wonder Woman. I'll, I'll go straight to the punchline. It turns out he bought the building from Yaron Versano, who is Mr. Gal Gadot. Huh? So if you're going to start smearing the Jewish community, including the Holocaust Museum, just back off from my Wonder Woman, Abe. <laughs> Um, you, did you see what I'm saying? Okay. You're going into dangerous territory here. Okay. 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 <laughs> so, I think. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, okay, you've a, you've you've got you've got both Gabriel and potentially Wonder Woman on your case as a result of your. Actually, I just I really think this guilt by association. Kidding aside, to be serious, because this is a serious podcast is a dangerous thing. I, 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 I mean, I'm telling you that Gal Gadot is a fine citizen of Israel. She doesn't need me to say that. But you, you start with the guilt by association. These, these, these people, these Cleon people, these Jewish cards people, this Rabbi Jill Jacobs, they, I, read, I read the piece. It's in the show notes. It's a smear campaign. I should say that Rabbi Jacobs' statement in the article I thought was fairly anodyne, and I, I don't I don't know why you're making a very big deal over it, but you know that's just an issue that every organization needs to deal with, whether taking money from a particular person or a particular fund or a particular foundation is worth the reputational risk that comes with it. This is not um, a new phenomenon. Certainly, it's it's not guilt by association. It's 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 fairly commonsensical. Uh, but again, I if you're, if you're asking for my view, I don't particularly care if they take Abramovich's money, but I think that their behavior should not be contingent on that. They should not be making statements on his behalf, whether he asks for it or not, or especially if he doesn't. That to me is actually something quite worse. If you have that that attitude or that tendency embedded in the way your organization runs, there's there's something thoroughly wrong with it. But I, I think we, we've t- kind of tired this topic out. No, no, it's clear, it's on. clear. It's time to move on I, the leftist. Woke millennials hate Wonder Woman. Paul, can we move to the next stop? Yes. <laughs> okay, let's 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 move to that. Let's move on to the next topic. Let's move on to the next. Topic. Gabe, Gabe let, Gabriel, let's uh, let's hear let's hear from you about what you wanted to discuss. Yeah, I mean, speaking of what it means to take donors' money uh, from donors, there's another big story in the in the Jewish world uh, this week. Um, and it involves uh, philanthropy. Uh, Becky Benaroya, 
has been very generously funding Israel studies at the University of Washington, one of the most execrable, far left, corrupt academic institutions in America, where all of the uh, academic institutions are so broken that there's a, a vibrant discussion about defunding uh, the universities. It's not only the elite Ivy League uh, schools, it goes from top to bottom. The um, uh, state uh, universities down to the, the community colleges are so riddled with wokeism that uh, the, the ordinary uh, folk, the citizens of, of, of the United States are, are fed up. And uh, I think uh, the university system is about to, to collapse. And, and, and with that in mind, we have a chance to talk about academic freedom and Israel studies here, two topics of great interest to our listeners. And um, here's what's happened. Let me remind you, I know you've read about it, you've thought about it, the Jews are talking about it. Becky Benaroya was shocked to discover that one of her faculty who she was funding, Leora Halperin, um, had signed a petition recently uh, defaming the state of Israel for its defensive uh, measures in response to Hamas, signing a petition which said that Israel was, among other things, a settler colonial enterprise. And that is a term of opprobrium. Leora Halpern had been hired, by the way, and I'm, I'm going to throw this over to you guys for comment, comment to teach Israel studies at University of Washington. In fact, her syllabi and her courses revolve around what she herself calls Israel-Palestine. Israel-Palestine this, Israel-Palestine that. So it's clear she's not living up to her obligation to teach Israel studies. She's teaching something called Israel-Palestine. And here's what happened. Uh, as you know, um, the donor expressed concern, uh, as you might understand, uh, um, and uh, in the end, the university chose to return the money, like millions and millions of shekels, to put it in terms that you can understand, Paul. Uh, and so uh, Leora Halpern has lost, in a, in a way, her, her position as, a, as, a, as, 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 as an Israel studies um, uh, mucky muck, but she retains her... her uh, she she uh, has the same tenured position, is what you're Yes. Talking. That's what I'm trying to say. She, she, she lost this funding. She's still a mucky muck, or as the Jews say, a mocker, but she, she, she retains her tenured position in uh, whatever her field is. I guess it's Israel studies. Uh, but, but, but they gave back the money, and uh, so she goes on about her life. But here's the punchline. The left went mad and circulated a petition. 500 Israel studies people, I guess maybe some others, Jewish studies. Myself have included. You signed a petition saying that this was a threat to academic freedom and to the status of Israel studies. What do you guys, uh, what do you guys think? Hey, what do you think? When you make a contribution to a university or a university department, um, there should be, even if there wasn't in this case, a very well understood point that you cannot dictate what an academic will study, what they will publish, or what they will teach. When you donate to a university, you have to understand the university has certain values, both its own values as well as being a member of the academic community at large. 
A donor cannot make these kind of dictations. Now, if the university in accepting this donation didn't make that clear, then they were perhaps right to return this money. If, if the donor felt that they might have some influence when surely they should not have. And in that case, I, I don't object to the university returning the money. If, however, they did make it clear in the start that this was not something that they could accommodate, then I think it was very wrong to, to, to pull this money out of the department, out of the Israel Studies Department or the Israel Studies Program and Professor Halperin's um, kind of position in it um, to do that. It was, that would have been very wrong. And that when I signed the petition, that is what it looked like. Um, right now, from what I'm seeing, they've reached some modus vivendi with um, the university where they're going to keep some of the, because this money was then invested, I think, in, in some way. So they're going to keep. <laughs> it was going invested with gains. Roman Abramovich. Sure. Yeah, they're going to keep the gains of that, and they're sending back the principal, $5 million. I don't know how much money. It may, if they put it in an S&P index fund, it made really, did really well over the last couple of years. So perhaps that original donation will have, in fact, most of it will have been recouped. But I, I, there was, there's no reason, a don't, like, if you're someone who wants to give money to a university, you cannot expect that to produce some kind of intended result. You want you give to a think tank if you want to do that. You could you know give to a journal or a magazine that's you know highly ideological. But Israel Studies is not Hasbara, and I think that needs to be made very clear. And that's something that the signatories of this letter wanted to convey. Hasbara, what, what's Hasbara? So, Hasbara, like uh, oh Hasbara, like, right. yeah. <laughs> Look, I I think that's a joke among friends. Can I can I step in here? I. The thing that disturbed me about this story was actually um, what it told me about Israel studies or what's happening in Israel studies in the United States. Because I, you know, I did, I'm, I'm not from the U.S. I didn't study in the United States, um, and, and I did actually study Israel. I'm well. I studied. I have my my master's is in Middle East politics, but I, Israel was a main part of my degree, studying in, in London. And I think if my professor there had been, I agree with you, Abe, that the Israel studies is not Hasbara, but I also think it shouldn't be the opposite. I also think Israel studies shouldn't be about, about calling Israel a settler colonial state. Um, and I, for, me, that, for me, that's very disturbing. I, I, I wouldn't expect to, start to, to study American history in London and have, and have, the, and have the essence of the of the uh, of the course, but, or the course being run by a director whose position is is that the United States is an illegitimate country, that would that that I think is that I think is very disturbing to me. And and the use and and the settler colonialist phrase struck me when I read the article because I know that to be a favourite um, a favourite phraseology of people that are seeking to defame um, to defame Zionism in Israel, um, and that. That was very, um, for me, that was a sort of warning sign. So I, I, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm let, I, I don't know so much about the ins and outs of, the, of, how this, of how the donations works, because I think in America, there's a particular, uh, Britain and Israel, um, the countries that I know better, of course, in, in this regard, don't have quite the same um, system. Dependence um, on private donors for university funds. Yeah, right? it doesn't work, it doesn't work in, in quite the same way, because 
we don't have as many. Certainly, Britain doesn't have as many uh, private donations going in that way. But but I know America is, is works works much more in that in that way. But but to me, I can understand. I can completely understand why the donor was very disturbed by by the the, the by the the the. Um, the choice of director of this Israel Studies program that she was funding. Um, I agree with you that that maybe there should have been some sort of there, there should have been things set set at the beginning of the whole process, which made it clear um, what the money was for, or or that the money shouldn't be tied to to the way it was going to be taught. But again, it seems to me that there's a kind of there's a sort of spectrum within which you know you can teach. A subject in a in a in a legitimate way, and just as it would not be legitimate to teach Israel studies as Hasbara, as you know, this is this is all these are all the great great things Israel does, and these are all the terrible things the Palestinians have done. It also, I think, is not acceptable to have an Israel to some have something called Israel studies, in which in which the director of it clearly doesn't think that the the uh, the, the basis of Israel. Um, is is anything other than than uh, than settler colonialism and, and and racism? That I think is also hugely problematic. So this was again we have to we have to really break down this story a little bit more, which was that she was not this was not thing these were not things she was saying in the classroom, and not that it would actually matter, but just to make that clear that this was not Zionism as, as settler colonialism was not her, you know, her academic forte, right? She, she, I, I'm not actually sh- quite sure what her um, scholarship is about, but it's not about that. Um, well, I happen I think, to have her scholarship right here. You remember that Woody Allen film? Uh, Annie y- Hall? Yes, yes. Marshall I McLuhan. happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here. Her latest book <laughs> happens to be titled Forging, Forging the Zionist Settler Past. Mm. That's yeah. that's an interesting one, but as as far as I know, she wouldn't, because I had recently interviewed Lorenzo Veracini about the whole settler colonial issue that was published in Jewish Currents. I happen to know Lorenzo. God bless you. In in January, uh, just and and it is whether or not one likes it, it is a serious academic paradigm that's that's applied to, to the case of Zionism, whether one okay. whether one likes it or not. So it's going God to be discussed you. because people have published on it before and you know, others are going to respond to it in some way. So I think the cat is out of the bag when it comes to the issue of settler colonialism. I don't think that is a main portion of, of Professor Halpern's research from what I understand. But either way, this donor objected to Halpern's, Professor Halpern signing a letter um, of Jewish and Israel studies scholars in May that made, uh, that made some reference to, to Zionism as being rooted in, in settler colonial conceptions, you know, blah, blah, blah. I didn't read the letter. I tend not to sign letters I don't fully understand because in the end that bites you in, in some way. Um, I, and I don't think it was really necessary to put all of that down if you want to condemn Israel's actions but you, you or, did or, sign or, this or Israel's letter. I signed the letter in defense of, of, of Professor Halpern. Yes, I, and, I, and I'm fully in favor of that. I mentioned nothing about- do you, do you think it could have blowback for the podcast? No. Did you consider the, the, the this long-term was, this prospects was, this of three signed, Jews for opinions before you signed? 
<laughs> this is our first episode. Let's not get into controversy. I'm also I'm also a member of the Association of Israel Studies. Um, oh, you are. Even though they haven't, I'm supposed to have access to the Israel Studies Review, and they after a couple of weeks, they still haven't given me access to it. That's have you read my issue article that I that I only bring up here as as a, as a slight form of public pressure for them to to work that out, but. This was someone's private political views. These were not things being expressed in an academic environment or even in an academic context. This was a letter signed by academics meant for public consumption as just kind of their political views, right? So this was this is not something, this donor has no issue or couldn't identify any issue with Professor Halpern's teaching or actual scholarship, right? This was her name appearing on a letter that mentions settler colonialism. Forging, right? forging the Zionist settler I, has. How can Zionists be settlers you, in their homeland? Wait, wait, wait. Let's, before well, we, can I just say something? Can I just say that I, I think I would be less, bo- I mean, I, th- I would still be bothered by someone with these views teaching about Israel personally, but I could, but if it was, if she were just a an academic at a university teaching, that's one thing. But the fact that she's the director of the of this of this program, I think to me that to me that that's it's it's putting the fox in charge of the hen house, right? It's it's um it's really you well, know, it's putting a fox is like, not I mean, Israel a no, I mean, name. It's, it's the it's study like, of Israel. It's and and some people who study uh, it are, are going to come to different conclusions about it. But, uh, okay, but so here so here we're going to disagree quite a lot because I I I just don't accept that settler colonialism is an is an, is a legitimate framing of Zionism. I just don't I just don't think it is. And I think I would commend everyone, by the way, to read um, the, the the great piece by Professor Alan Johnson, British political scientist, um, on exactly why. Settler colonialism doesn't work uh, as a framing in the journal. What journal was it? Fathom. For Fathom, yeah. And I and I think I think to in order, it's one of those things, and this comes up a lot in the in the in the discussion around Israel and Zionism. To me, at least, um, in order to make settler colonialism a framework for Zionism, you have to you have to be extraordinarily selective in the way that you talk talk about. The history of uh, of the creation of the state of Israel, and and indeed the 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 um, the, the history of the Zionist movement, you have to very very carefully cherry pick quotes by particular Zionist thinkers. You have to talk about 1948 in a way which omits huge chunks of the facts, and and only then can you can you make a compelling case. And that that's that that is my experience of it. And I think that you and you might be right, Abe. I'm sure you are right in fact, that the cat is out of the bag in the sense that settler colonialism has become an accepted paradigm. But that to me is that to me is a is a tragedy. And that and to me that is and a travesty. And I'm and I don't accept it as a as a, and it may be here will part ways, but I, I don't accept that as a as legitimate framing of, of studying Israel and, and and as a as a way of studying Israel in any in anything other than a than than defamation. Not, not, not to make this, you know, the topic in itself. But what is, what is your understanding of settler colonialism? I'm just curious about what, what you, what you think. Because actually, the criticism I have of this paradigm, it's actually, I think, 
a very similar criticism that Yair Wallach has, um, who's an Israel mm. studies professor at, at SOAS in London, is that it's a very modelistic way of thinking, that you're kind of shoving everything into a, into a little um, kind of box to try to get it to fit a certain political theory or paradigm. And that might be an issue I have with it, because there are certain, you know, unique characteristics of Zionism that don't necessarily translate to a typical um, settler colonial frame. But at the same time, I think if you do read Veracini, if you do read Patrick Wolf, I don't think that they're making this as, as a kind of moral argument that some people have turned this into. Um, settler colonialism is just the way they understand certain historical processes. And, you know, they even if someone were to, I mean, I'm, I don't want to go too far into this, but I just think that if we to understand that the way people use these frames or these ways of thinking are to better understand certain events in history or to understand certain processes. I don't think it, there, of course, when this is transferred over to the activist realm or into the, or into the, you know, the polemical realm, you'll have people use settler colonial as, as a pejorative, as a way to delegitimize the state of Israel. But you know there are settler colonial states all over the world whose legitimacy are not whose legitimacy is not questioned. I am in a settler colonial state right now. <laughs> Lorenzo yes. Veracini is in a settler colonial state in Australia. <laughs> it's not. It's not something that's you know the Israel's legitimacy is rooted in the liberal international order. It is not rooted in some primordial sense of of of, of belonging to the land. Right. So. I, I, again, I don't want, I don't want to take too much time out with this, but I'll just I'll just say this. You're right, of course, that that that, that you are you are currently in a settler colonial state, and there are other settler colonial states: Australia, Canada, um, New Zealand, I guess. Um, but but and and you're also right that they are that those countries' legitimacy is not called into question by virtue of their being settler colonial states. But that's the point. Israel's legitimacy has repeatedly been called into question, partly because, or often because, at least, especially in, let's say, the last 30 years, um, because of this, of its reference to its, to its founding and, and, it, and, it, and the illegitimacy of its founding. Um, and, and you can't, and, and once you know that, you can't not know it. And she knows it, and she must know. So that's, that, I think that's, that in itself, that in itself is, is to me is, that in itself is one reason why you need to be bloody careful about using that kind of terminology with Israel, um, because of the because of the implications uh, for those that that wish it for those that wish it ill. Um, also, because I, as I, you know, if, if you I, again, I don't want to go into it in huge detail, but I think if you're going to say it's settler colonial, then you have to ignore a whole bunch of things. You have to ignore the ways in which there is a Jewish connection to the land, which there was not in any settler colonial state. You have to ignore the fact that the, that the people who came there were not sent by some imperial power or some great power to settle the land. They came from all over. There were many of them, many of them had no money. Um, they were escaping persecution. They were not, they were not there. They were not there to persecute a, um, an well, many settler population. colonists were always were fleeing persecution. That wouldn't that wouldn't be a unique characteristic. But I think I, I get the point, and a lot of these, just to say, have been have attempted to have you know scholars such as Veracini have addressed these arguments. Whether or not they would be to your satisfaction is, is a I suspect question. they would not. 
Right. So they, it's not, these aren't, I, I don't think these points are ignored. These aren't hacks, right? These are, these are people who seriously think about this issue and, and, and come what may will put out their research, right? We're not, we're not, you know, saying anything about that. But I, I think when it comes to a university, when it comes to academic research, you, a donor cannot expect a specific result, especially if that result is being is meant to be used in 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 the polemical arena or in a different. Let me context. ask you something about it's, that. It's it's unfair to academics who have it who are working me. within. Okay, go ahead. No, Gabe, no, no, Gabe, I, Gabriel, Gabriel. God forbid the Jews. Gabriel, God, let's make this. Let's no, let, let him, I, I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not great at, at continuing my line of thought always, so I'm happy to, to kick it to Gabe. Gabriel. So Gabriel, Gabriel, let's Gabriel, can we make this the last point, the last question, then Abe answers, and then we finish this point, this sure. section? Sure, I don't mean to interrupt, but... Uh, Go for it. Go for it. I, I was raised by Litvox. I don't know about you guys. Uh, <laughs> Same. Yeah, so, so you're used to it. Let me, let me give you a list of items, and you tell me which one is not like the others. And this is a direct response, Abe, to what you just said, which is that donors can't expect their money to... to go any particular way. Is that a fair s summary? Uh, <laughs> Academic institutions, yes. If you want, if you want to All donate right. to a think tank, you might, there might be different um, expectations there. I'm not familiar with <laughs> All right. Let me put it to you this way. Women's studies, ethnic studies, black studies, gender studies, LGBTQ studies, Asian American studies, Palestine studies, Israel studies. Which of them attacks the very subject and the legitimacy of the existence of the object of its study? The rest of them, I'll put it to you this way. Here's what they do. They offer this kind of knowledge and understanding. Here are some interesting realities about the subject that are often overlooked because of stereotypes. Here are some particularly wonderful things about the subject matter. And here's how the objects of our study are discriminated against. Now, that applies to every- What about American studies? That's, that's a very good, you nasty son of a- uh, look, you're right. You're absolutely right. I have to say, I share, I share your uh, observation that American studies has become, in effect, anti-American studies. You're absolutely right about that, Abe. And I can't pull the wool over uh, your eyes. Um, what about Jewish studies? <laughs> so, so it's not the only exception, but there are just a few exceptions of studies programs. I'll be brief. Studies programs, to my mind, I'm a classical liberal education guy. I don't know how, how, how nuanced I need to be on this podcast. I was going to say suck, but don't, they're not the highest form of, 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 uh, of scholarship, actually. I, 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 I introduced myself as having a background in political philosophy. I'm, I'm probably too proud of that. I, I, I'm a devotee of the, of the political theory canon. To me, it's, it's a source of wisdom. I don't expect studies programs to offer wisdom. I expect them to offer some education about where the stereotypes are mistaken, how the groups are, are misrepresented, some special virtues of the groups. And uh, that seems to be how studies programs work, except for Jewish studies and Israel studies and, and American studies. And, and, and the rest, and there's quite a long list, 
when did gender studies ever ever focus on anything except its its political axe to grind? And I don't say Israel studies should do that. Gender studies is a nightmare. Women's studies, black studies, ethnic studies, LGBTQ studies, they they I don't say Israel studies should sink that low, but let's find a happy medium. Okay, thank you. Dave, did you want to respond to that or should we move on? I should only, I'll only briefly say that it's been a very long time since I've taken undergraduate courses in any of those subjects or departments. But I do remember distinctly um, taking an Africana studies course, and, and this actually came up again last week in something I was reading, where we discussed Marcus Garvey's UNIA as an example of settler colonial in, um, you know, organization or intention. And this was you know, um, an African-American who was plotting a quote-unquote return to Africa. So I will just leave that out there as something for listeners to possibly consider and to, and to think about as they, you know, ponder what we've been discussing on this, um, on this episode. Okay, thank, thank you, Abe. If, if anyone heard both Gabriel and I guffawing loudly when Abe said that it's been a while since he did his undergraduate studies, that's because when I did my undergraduate studies, Abe was toddling around in, <laughs> in, in a diaper. And when, Gabe, born. And when Gabriel born. and when Gabriel did them, it was not them, conceived. Abe was, Abe was not a, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't even met I hadn't even met your mother yet, Abe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's almost certainly time to move on now, if it wasn't if it wasn't before. Um, Okay, so so this is my this is my bit. This is my bit. So I'm I'm moving away from uh, from uh, from Jewish, Jewish issues, or, or or should we say specifically Jewish issues? And as the um, as the non-American, I guess as the non-American in the group, uh, I wanted to give a, a a foreigner's view of the importance, as I see it, of of an America that is projecting power in the world and that is seen. To be, to be projecting power in the world. Um, and I say that both as a resident of the Middle East where American retrenchment um, has, I think, been terrible um, uh, in, in, all, in all manner of ways. Um, and also as someone for whom um, democracy and, and, and liberal democracy is very important and, and the, the way in which America used to be um, a model uh, for that, not because it was perfect, um, but because it promised um, an idea and it modeled um, an idea, uh, however imperfectly, which um, millions of people around the world look to. Uh, and you only have to speak to people who live behind the Iron Curtain uh, during the Cold War um, to, know, to know the truth of that. Um, and uh, the, the the article actually that I that we're going to link to in the show notes um, that I chose um, to in some way exemplify this is something that Brett Stevens wrote um, in commentary actually a few months ago about Afghanistan or primarily about Afghanistan but um, but I think is actually um, and I, I'm not sure if I want to get it too much into what I think NATO. Um, should be doing now because I'm not 100% sure myself. I have some thoughts and then I, 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 I waver a little on them. Um, but essentially, I think that we would not have reached this point if um, the United States and the West more broadly, but, but led by the United States, 
uh, as it always has been, um, um, were ha had taken action sooner. And I think that, um, and, and not just in Eastern Europe, in, in Syria as well. Um, there's a, I, I, I wrote something on, on Facebook a while ago, which upset, um, I think, friends to my right and probably a few to my left, which was, the, which was pointing out that in um, the, although a lot of people, though there's this debate going on about whether if Donald Trump had won in, 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 um, in the last election, we would be in this state. And I know Gabriel has some very strong views on this that, uh, that we would not be, and, I, and I, I don't particularly agree with him, but we can leave that for now. But actually, I think uh, the more crucial election, perhaps, was 2016, um, because Hillary Clinton, for all her flaws, and I have plenty of criticisms of Hillary Clinton, um, but for all her flaws, Hillary Clinton um, actually was running on a much more hawkish platform uh, than either Donald Trump or um, Barack Obama. Um, and she had, as part of her platform, was was pledging to uh, to um, implement a no-fly zone over Syria to prevent Russian bombing of Syrians. Um, now, had that been implemented, and had Russia been stopped in its tracks in Syria, I'm not sure we'd be where we are now. Um, and certainly had NATO... Um, taken some steps, um, and the West more broadly, but led by the United States, had taken some steps at the time of the invasion of Georgia or the invasion of Crimea, um, then we would not be where we are now. Um, and where we are now, I think, is, 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 is a disaster uh, for Ukraine, uh, not just for Ukraine. Um, and I'll just end on this uh, before I get comments from you guys. Um, there's, there's, there's been talk uh, by some, Gary Kasparov and others, of a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And, and a lot of people are saying that would be terrible, including the, the American administration. I think Anthony Blinken um, said that's absolutely not going to happen. The British government said the same thing. It's not going to happen because if you attack, a, if, you know, if we end up shooting down a Russian plane, which will inevitably happen, then, um, then we end up in a, in a, in a war with a nuclear-armed Russia. To which, to which I, and, I, and I hear that, but I think my response, what, at least one response of mine, when I'm feeling particularly um, angry and saddened and distraught at what's happening to the ravaged citizens of Ukraine, is that Biden is saying, you know, Ukraine's not a NATO country. If Putin acting as a NATO country it'll be different. Well, maybe, but if he acting as a NATO country, we're still in the same situation. If we, if we, if we go, go against him militarily, we are again going militarily against a nuclear-armed nuclear Russia. So do we, at what point do we say no? At what point do we say stop? Um, and I'm going to leave it there for now. I have other things to say, but I want to hear from you guys. So whoever wants to come in first, I'll be happy to hear. To quote Bill Maher, and I say this quickly, just to interject, and then I pass it to Abe, with contempt for Bill Maher, wake me when they invade Poland, which is what he said to Kasparov's face uh, not long ago, maybe a year or so ago, uh, on his program. Abe? Okay, <laughs> Abe. 
So there's, as, as you pointed out in your introduction, there's been this kind of bipartisan um, move away from American leadership on the world stage oh, since the post, since the brief period of the post 9-11 kind of escalation of U.S. involvement to the Middle East ever since, I would say, 2009, 2010, you know, across from the Obama administration through the Trump administration and now once again in the Biden administration to pivot back, pivot toward what we, what, what foreign policy analysts in Washington see as the up and coming threat of China. Um, and to, and the term was called pivoting to Asia. And this is, this has been a, a fairly consistent staple of American foreign policy bipartisan over the last 10 or 12 years. I agree that it has to some extent led to this point where, where actors such as Vladimir Putin, but also the Iranian regime see don't 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 see um, the possibility of of an American response or America um, standing up to them or to support its allies in a meaningful way, and that has has led to dreadful consequences, including um, Putin's initial um, intervention in Syria, as well as this current war um, in Ukraine. On the issue of a no-fly zone, I have to very strongly disagree, or, or I I don't know if I very strongly disagree, but it's just this. The time to have done that would have been before Russian planes were in the sky. When, when the decision to escalate or the decision to trigger such a conflict was still in Russian hands. Right now to establish a no-fly zone, or if Hillary Clinton had tried to establish a no-fly zone in Syria in 2017, involves e, A, shooting down Russian planes, or B, threatening to shoot down Russian planes and not actually doing it. Um, and three, of course, is you have to establish air superiority, which means knocking out um, particular installations on the ground that help that help Russia coordinate its air campaigns. And I think these were were very clear non-starters. The United States isn't going to to attack um, the Russian armed forces, and I don't suppose Russia will attack a NATO country, knowing the drastic consequences of that. That is the entire point of NATO: is that it never is that it never actually occurs. That if there were to be an art, the only time Article Five has ever been invoked was when the United States was attacked by a non-nuclear terrorist group. So the. Russia understands, Putin understands that if you were to attack Poland, Estonia, um, I think Latvia is also a member of NATO or Lithuania, mm -hmm. to do that would be a, a catastrophic decision that could escalate to a nuclear exchange. And he will, I do not believe he will do that. Um, had Ukraine been admitted to NATO 20 years ago, he would not have been invading Ukraine today. Um, but that's that's in the past, and it's hard to Would change that. Would he have been invading today if if, uh, if Trump had been reelected? I think so. Yes, I don't. I don't see. I don't. I don't think this is tied, especially to to the issue of who's in the White House. As I said, this there there is a general sense that the United States is moving away from involvement in the Middle East and in Europe. And Donald Trump says otherwise. You, you saw his lecture at CPAC. Uh, his lecture, yes. No, I, 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 I'm sure he would say otherwise, but I don't think that's the case. I, I don't think there's, and I don't think it was directly tied to who was in the White House. This was something that has been a very long time in the making, um, for various different reasons. Putin um, decided on this time. In many ways, it, it appears to have been a miscalculation. But though, would you blame as I do I think Biden in the medium to long term? This? What? Would you blame, as I do, Biden supporters 
for the catastrophe in uh, I, uh, Ukraine. I blame the invader because, personally. I think I think Putin bears some responsibility. Only second so. second only to Biden supporters, and my reasoning is as follows: Afghanistan, Afghanistan. Brett Stevens in the essay, which is in the uh, notes for this podcast, no less no less an intellect than Brett Stevens says what I happen to believe. Uh, although I was glad to see that Brett thought so too. It was a huge, huge green light. It was a terrible turning point. Only an incompetent, catastrophic administration, the worst presidency in American history, could have bungled that so badly that it led to this. Okay, so let me just come back a little bit on both on <laughs> both of you. Firstly, firstly, Gabriel Brett also says that 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 he he's not that you know he's not exactly a fan of of Donald Trump and 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 Biden was of course implementing. The the um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan that that Trump and Pompeo signed, um, however incompetently, and I agree, and I don't I don't depart from you at all in in critiquing Biden's incompetence uh, with regard to Afghanistan. But but I I'm I'm not of the opinion that it would be that it would make much of a difference if Trump were president. And I think it could well, given that Trump might well in a second term um, be looking to uh, to pull the United States out of NATO. I think it could well have been. Um, much worse, um, but that's another. That that's. that's Did you not see his advice. lecture at CPAC? He, he said it would never have happened under his administration. Oh, oh, well, if, oh, well, if Trump if Trump said it, then it must. Yeah, be. it must be true. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think if I think if we I think if we're relying on I think if we're relying on Trump's assessment of himself, then we're probably. To, to we're just probably, add in, he also suggested, and I and I saw this yesterday that if that we should give certain plane, planes to Ukraine. I don't know who. I actually have to read up because this was a complicated policy proposal. I'll have to listen. look into it. But it was to paint the Chinese flag on our planes and to say that and and to bomb Russia and say China did. Listen, and I, I just would be. Listen, I would be delighted. White House, that is what he came up with. Jewish currents would, would like to see them bomb Abramovich, but anyway. If if Donald Trump really wanted to wanted to as president give plane to Ukraine, I'd be absolutely delighted because the last time he was talking to Ukraine about about military aid, he was conditioning on that military aid on the Ukrainian government finding dirt on Joe Biden. So that's uh, I think I think we should uh, I think I I don't think we can trust that Trump would be would be the perfect president in the White House. He supported moment. Ukraine much more so than any other uh, any other president. I'm I'm not sure that's true, but we but we can we can people, our listeners can check those facts themselves. I'm not in a position to 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 uh, to argue that I don't know enough. But uh, Abe, just to, just to come back on your on what you said, um, look, I hear what you say about the timing. I think that I think to an extent that's right. And I, but I but I but again, we can talk about. Um, American, the decision by American governments not to act at times they could have acted. I think uh, a mutual friend of mine and Gabriel's, Jonathan Spire, um, who's a Israeli, British expert on um, mainly on Syria and Lebanon, but the Middle East more bro- more broadly, has written that um, that there was, a, in his view, there was a very very small window in which of time in which Western assistance to um, to rebels in Syria could have made a difference before those rebels essentially became taken over by jihadists. 
Um, and that that window was not that window was not uh, was not taken taken advantage of by the by the Obama administration. Um, and I think that's that that I think is 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 very um, is, is it was indicative of the moves that Obama was making in the Middle East, of which I was very critical at the time. Um, and as you said, Abe, um, the this, this this sort of period of American withdrawal or retreat or retrenchment, whatever you want to call it, spanned has now spanned its third presidency. Um, but I, 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 where I disagree with you, I don't think we can make judgments that Putin would not attack um, um, an Estonia or a or a Lithuania because they're in NATO. I don't think. I think at this point, Putin is is not acting rationally. Um, I, I have um, I have friends, uh, Russian friends who now live in Israel, who are um, who who used to think that however much Putin was uh, had these you know clear autocratic um, tendencies and characteristics was essentially a rational actor, and that right now he's he's kind of living this um, this kind of crazy fantasy of, of of imagining himself as Peter the Great and establishing some sort of new Russian empire. And there's there's nothing particularly rational about what he's doing. The same people who are agreeing with you, Abe, that he would definitely not, 100% not attack um, these these smaller NATO countries in Eastern Europe, um, were also very, very sure that he was not going to invade Ukraine. And I don't know if that was also the case with you. I, I have no idea. Hey, Ben he, Rhodes he already on the attacked phone Ukraine here. eight years ago. So this was that that I think was a settled issue that he was willing to, in some ways, attack Ukraine. Whether he was going to go for the invasion that he's going for now was a different question. But to, to understand what what the seriousness of of attacking an article an Article Five country would be, I think is is a completely of a completely different magnitude. It's 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 something his military understands could lead to to to, to catastrophic results. Um, I, I agree that any kind of war like this must in some way be irrational. No rational actor would pursue something like this. There's no, there's no doubt about that to me. Um, but I think there's a difference between acting irrationally and acting suicidally or, to re, re, or acting in such a way to bring death to hundreds of thousands of people, at least, including himself. If and, he's and, not crazy, why would he do that? I think. Look, I think I, I, I want to close. I want to. I want to finish up. But if if you'll permit me to have, will you guys permit permit me to have a last word on this? Sure. So, look, I think that I just don't have any confidence that um, I don't have any confidence that as things stand, with the state of American uh, willingness to to put um, uh, its own resources and indeed people um, to, to, uh, to, to military endeavors abroad, um, I don't have any confidence that even um, the invasion of a NATO, a smaller, I'm not talking about the invasion of like Britain or France, but of a smaller NATO country in Eastern Europe, I don't have any confidence that it would. Um, well, we have that it would. We have, would we have military stationed in those countries. If he, right, if he were I, to attack Estonia, he would he would almost certainly hit American um, forces or European forces by just by by just the, the 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 stroke of luck in invading such a small country. It's just it's. I'm not going to say it's impossible given given the horror we've seen over the last two weeks, but it's just. I I think 
he understands that that's, that is a, 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 a total different line um, to cross. And second of all, I'll just say is that look how difficult the Ukraine invasion has been for him. And the Russian military, it does not have millions of soldiers. It's not like they can fight one war in Ukraine and then launch another war in Poland or Latvia or Estonia. They do not have that capability right now. They are not the Germans of the 1930s. They have um, a second rate armed forces. The only reason Russia is feared right now by, by NATO and by the United States is because of one particular weapon it has in the thousands, which are nuclear weapons. And that is the kind of escalation that Biden has a responsibility on behalf of his country, as well as other NATO countries who don't want to be dragged into this, not to lead to that. And that I, I don't see that as being a fundamental problem. Now, there are some people who have argued that you shouldn't explicitly take these things off the table, that that's a problem, that you should leave Putin guessing in some cases. In that sense, I'll just disagree on on, on grounds of, of game theory and, and other things like that, which is that you don't want to let to, to, to leave open that space for miscalculation. You want to make very clear that any escalation on that part on attacking NATO will be a Russian decision and is not something the United States is risking. I think our listeners will will maybe get from from this first from this from this part of our conversation of our first episode um, that I'm that I may be a little um, a little uh, perhaps a little naive, but certainly someone who believes in um, uh, in the importance of values, um, and that there is something happening in Ukraine, uh, a country that was um, that that was and is uh, fighting to be. The kind of democracy that Putin is terrified of is absolutely terrified of, and I think that the that there's something about you know Putin's claim, which is similar to China's claim and also the claim of many Arab states, that democracy is only for certain types of people and certain cultures, and you you guys will have liberal democracy and, and civil rights, and we don't. That's not right for our for our culture and our people. And what Putin is seeing is Ukraine, a country made up of people very very similar in some ways culturally almost identical to the Russians that have chosen liberal democracy and that have chosen to ally themselves with, uh, with the West and the sort of basic and basic fundamental liberal freedoms. And he is terrified of that and what it could mean for him. And I think that we, um, if we allow that, um, that um, uh, desire for freedom to be quashed um, at our peril. Um, and that's that's really what what I think is motivating my profound um, unhappiness with 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 the Western reaction. Um, Transgenderism okay. for all. Transgenderism, diversity, equity, inclusion. That's going to be cut. Critical I mean, okay, that, that, that's for a future. That's for a future episode. Okay, um, as we draw this episode to a close, uh, what I think we want to do at the end of each episode is for each of us to submit um, someone uh, to be to receive a kolakavod, a, a uh, someone that has done something worthy of our admiration or that has impressed us um, in the last week. Um, and uh, who would like to go first? So I've already mentioned David Cleon for that fantastic profile of, of Roman Abramovich. So I'm just going to reiterate that and encourage all of our listeners to read it. Okay. 
fantastic. Gabriel Brown, sir. I'd like to mention a great Jewish American, a great Ukrainian Jewish American, and a great Russian Jewish Ukrainian American, Vladislav Davidzon, a good friend of mine, who tonight writes to us, as he does periodically from Kiev. You've read his publications in Tablet. You've seen him on CNN. He's a dear friend. I met uh, Vlad in Jerusalem in 2014 at Barud uh, Bistro. I won't tell you the address because I don't want a bunch of losers to show up there. It's one of my most treasured spots in uh, Jerusalem. Vlad is a, uh, I hope he wouldn't mind me putting it this way, somewhat of a protege or perhaps I should say a colleague of Bernard Henri Levy. Um, mm. He's uh, friends, let's say, with uh, many of the most important intellectuals in the truest sense of the word that, that, that BHL stands for and that Vlad stands for. Those who risk their lives, their very being, their soul, their integrity, their life, uh, in fact, to engage ideas where the rubber meets the road. He could have left um, Ukraine where he was uh, long ago, uh, as many have done. He chose to stay. Follow him on Twitter, Vlad Davidson. Read him on tablet. He's writing the best journalism from the conflict of our time, and I miss him dearly. And uh, I say, Kol Hakavod, Vladi. Zeit Megazund, Vladi. Okay, thank you very much. Um, my Kolakavod is not to a person, but to an institution, and it's an institution that gets a lot of sticks, often, or perhaps um, sometimes. Um, legitimately, and that is the Jewish agency. Um, and the reason why I'm giving it a good kolakavod is because the Jewish agency is actually doing quite extraordinary um, work in um, assisting uh, Jewish refugees from Ukraine uh, to come to Israel, um, including setting up um, a, a, an incredible uh, network uh, in Poland um, in order to get them out of Ukraine and over to Israel, um, and um, I'm sure there'll be um, missteps along the way, but the fact that um, an organization that uh, is often derided as, um, as anachronistic and, and, and sort of, you know, without a uh, motivation, and certainly there's been a lot of talk here in Israel because there's been a long-standing um, um, impasse in finding a new chem, the Jewish agency, and that's seen as some kind of sign of its of its uh, irrelevance. Um, but actually, it turns out that when um, that when the um, uh, proverbial uh, well, I'm not sure we're gonna we can swear on this podcast, but the the proverbial S word hits the fan, um, then um, it actually steps up and does extraordinary work in rescuing um, Jews that unfortunately in 2022 still need rescuing. So that's my colleague of um, Okay, thank you to the wonderful Abe Silverstein and the wonderful Gabriel Brahm. And from me, Paul Gross, this is Three Jews, Four Opinions. We hope you've enjoyed it. And we'll be back next week with another episode. And the fourth opinion is yours. And, uh, oh, shit. I forgot to press record. When? At the beginning? Uh, I'm kidding. That was great. That was our first episode. You guys were awesome. I enjoyed it. I, ho I hope yeah, I didn't I ruin too. it.
Did I ruin it? No, no, not at all. No, no, no. It was good fun. It was good fun. You guys were terrific. Really. In my, in my view. How, I, I, how I long is the recording? Just out of curiosity, because I don't remember when we started. Uh, we started on Wednesday. It's Sunday now. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably, I think it's probably about an hour and it's, it's over an hour. About an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see if we can upload this to, um, what's it called? Uh, Spotify, as the Jews say here in Israel. Spotify. <laughs> uh, Podbean. Stitcher. Um, Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. And I, I don't know anything about this, so I'll I'll <laughs> leave it to one or both of you. All right. Is the is the uh, is the hotline from Moscow to Midwood still still working out there, Doctor Strangelove? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have that? Is it is it a, still a thing? The hotline. I, I don't. I, we mean Brighton Beach to Moscow. You don't really live in Midwood. Do you? I think I was living in Midwood. <laughs> Gabriel, I do Gabriel, live. Gonna, I, Gabriel, I have to go. I have to go because right. it's really late, and I need all to. Right. I, but but I'm going to post this to the internet tomorrow. You're all going to be famous. Wait a second. Wait a second. Um, so can we stop <laughs> recording? Because we don't. We, otherwise, we're going to have to edit this bit out. Anyway. Oh, all right. All right. Hey, everybody. Good night and 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 good luck. Wait, no, We're going to edit that part. Anyway. Still talk. You can stop recording. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to stop the recording so that my friends can say something honest for a change. <laughs>